Uh, you'll notice the name of the sermon, because you put the, the name of the sermon up today, How to Be a Saint. And you may think, well, that's kind of strange. Some of you know what I'm going to do with that, but some of you don't know what I'm going to do with it. But I want to show you how to be a saint and what a saint is. But let's have a little bit of a review first. Last week, we started with Paul's conversion, and we saw how this man who, uh, who was happy to see Christians killed, he was there when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was, was murdered, literally, and he approved of it. And the Apostle Paul, who was basically a, a brilliant religious terrorist, was on the way to Damascus to take men and women out of their homes who said that they were Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem and some wouldn't uh, make it alive. I mean, what a terrible man the Apostle Paul was until he met Jesus. And then he became a saint. And then you'll understand why I even said that as we go through the sermon. And so uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at starting to look at his writings, and we're going to go through all of his writings, ending eventually with the book of Romans. I'll either do that or whoever has replaced me after my demise, but it'll be a while from now. Uh, and uh, we're, going to, we're, we're going to make sure that I'm going to do the best I can to make sure that we understand these particular scriptures because there's no better writer that I could ever imagine studying than the Apostle Paul. He wrote 25% of the New Testament. And to think about his background that we studied so thoroughly last week and to imagine him uh, becoming what he became for the glory of God is just quite amazing. So we're going to start... We're first and second Corinthians. We'll start in first Corinthians, obviously. And these are letters written by Paul to a church body which has many difficulties because of their commitment to Jesus in the midst of a society that despises the truths of the gospel. And it's very important that we don't read these personal letters using our present culture as a mirror, judging their difficult circumstances. Paul cared very much for the men and women, for the families who were part of the Corinthian church. Therefore, we will continually work hard at understanding their particular challenges and then determine how we here should live in our culture and circumstances of our lives. And, and I, I feel I need to say this, I will not be dealing with arguments some have made either that Paul didn't write these letters or that they're full of errors. After two millennia of scholarly criticism, Paul's letters remain among the most brilliant explanations of how to live the Christian life and how to be useful as a member of the church headed by Jesus. It's a privilege and a great responsibility to read and understand and apply Paul's divinely learned principles. Every word of the letters to the Corinthians has been inspired by the unerring Spirit of God who will help us to understand and obey what is written. So let's start by a little bit of background. Corinth was situated between the Saronic Gulf and the Corinthian Gulf. Now, I put up this uh, large map here just to show you. You can see Athens over here. So Paul, we're going to read about it in a moment, moved from Athens all the way over here to Corinth. Now, you see the Corinthian Canal there. 
That wasn't there in Paul's day. That's there today, the Corinthian Canal. And what happens is uh, there were a lot of ships came to Corinth, and, uh, and they wanted to go into the Saronic Gulf and to go to other places, but for some of them it was too dangerous to go around. And so what they did is they came to Corinth, and they had this method is sort of like rolling wheels that they could put the ships on and they could uh, bring them across uh, the uh, Corinthian Gulf out, uh, over there to the Saronic Gulf. Or sometimes what they would do in the smaller ships that really couldn't make it around the 250-mile area to get around to all of these other places, uh, they would empty them and carry in various methods. They would carry all of the, uh, 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 all, everything that was on the ship over uh, to the uh, other isthmus that was in there and be able then for those ships, uh, new ships to go on as they went from ship to ship. And uh, the, the reason I even tell you that is because I want you to see uh, that in Corinth, uh, there was a huge population of people on these ships coming and going all the time from all over the world. Now, besides that, from the lower part of Corinth, you could look up inland to a hill almost 2,000 feet high, which was called the Acropolis. And that's a picture of it uh, today. And, uh, and it, uh, the temple on top of the Acropolis was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And it is said to have housed up to 1,000 temple priestesses who were sacred prostitutes. And in the evenings, they descended from the Acropolis and plied their trade in the streets of Corinth. And this was a major problem even in the church in Corinth. The society embrace this religious prostitution so some in the church had a very loose view regarding sexual practices. And Paul spends a lot of time talking about that. And then just a little bit of general history in the background. In 146 BC, 146 years before Jesus came, the Roman general Lucius Mummius captured and completely destroyed Corinth. And then around 100 years later, Julius Caesar in 44 BC uh, totally rebuilt Corinth, and it became the site of the Isthmian Games, sort of like our Olympics, and that's why we have a lot of athletic illustrations uh, from the Apostle Paul. Now, Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city in Paul's day, like New York or Toronto or London, or, and it was full of Romans, Greeks, many from Eastern races, including Jews, who have been expelled from Rome by the Edict of Claudius, which explains why the tent maker, Aquila, and his wife Priscilla were part of the church. And you'll see why that was kind of important in a moment. Now, with the influx of diverse people, came Roman and Greek religions, mystery cults from Egypt and Asia, and, of course, the Jewish religion with its peculiar belief in only one God. All the other religions had a whole bunch of gods who fought against each other, and the people tried to keep a good relationship with all of these pantheon 
of gods. But the uh, Jews had one god. Uh, the Corinth of Paul's day was a very licentious place. And to Corinthianize literally meant to have intercourse of prostitutes. Corinth was a place of money, a place of power. Uh, the people had no absolutes, and they did what was right in their own eyes. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you know how much of a tragedy that is. Actually, it seems to be the case today in our own culture. The population was constantly shifting due to all the sea trading. Therefore, by ministering in Corinth, Paul had an influence on people who would end up everywhere in the known world. I believe he saw Corinthian corruption as an opportunity to show the power of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Corinth was full of homosexuals, prostitutes, thieves, religious cult leaders, and every kind of sleazy character that one could imagine. I mean, what an opportunity to prove that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. The church in Corinth consisted of people from every strata of society, some wealthy, but as Paul says at one time, not many wealthy, and influential, but the majority were converts from the lower classes. Gordon Fee has written a tremendous commentary on, uh, on the Corinthian letters, and here's one, just one sentence from it. The church, talking about the Corinthian church, was in the world as it had to be. We're in the world and we need to be. But the world was in the church as it ought not to be. That was the problem. So we first see Paul coming to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. That's why I asked you to make sure you had your Bibles or instruments open there. So Acts 18, starting at verse 1, uh, follow along as I read it. After this, Paul was, before this, Paul was at the Acropolis. He had had all kinds of arguments, especially about the resurrection, and was rejected, even though a few people became Christians. And then chapter 18, after this, Paul left Athens, and you saw that on the map, and then went all the way around to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native, Pont a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because... Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he, Paul, was a tent maker, that's how he made his living now, as they were, as they, were they were tent makers, so he joined them and he stayed and worked with them. And then every Sabbath, that was Saturday, Paul reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. There would be Greeks in the synagogue uh, who had converted to Judaism. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, and we're going to learn a lot about them over the time that we study these letters, uh, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. They supported him and got others to support him, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, if you're here last week, you know that the Lord Jesus, who stopped Paul on the Damascus Road, 
uh, had told him that he was going to have all kinds of troubles, but he was also going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean that he ignored the Jews or anybody at all. That wasn't the case. He always went to the synagogues wherever he went. But it does mean that the main ministry Paul was given was to the Gentiles, which is a big deal, especially when you understand uh, what the Jews thought of Gentiles and what Paul, uh, the previous Paul, Saul, thought uh, of Gentiles. It would be just like, we don't want anything to do with those filthy Gentiles. But Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and we go through Acts and we see how that happens. So then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justice, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and here's what he said. Paul was must was used to this. That's what happened to him in Damascus. Do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. I have to stop there, for I am with you. If we can fully grasp that, we sing it every Sunday and Wednesday when we come here in one of the songs. God is with us. Jesus said when he left this earth, I left behind the Great Commission uh, and told us that we're to go out into all the world to make disciples. He said, I will be with you until the end of the age, and then we'll all be together. <laughs> and so God is with us. That's a reality that we must grasp as Christians. And so he, here Paul is being told by Jesus, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, I want you to, as I said at the beginning, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first three verses only. First three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And uh, uh, so let's start this way. Once you're there, it starts off by saying this. Every word here is in many ways important. Paul called to be an apostle. The word called is especially important. But just to sort of set this up a little bit, it's like you're opening a letter. You're not sure it was from. And the first thing in the letter, that's the way they wrote in that day, was who's sending the letter. So right away, oh, this is a letter from Paul. And Paul is introducing himself in this, in this very important way. The letter is from Paul, who's called to be an apostle of Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes uh, was probably Paul's amanuensis. Have you ever heard that word before? It means secretary, really. The one that writes down things for him. Paul, Paul would probably pace around, and then Sosthenes, and he had others that did this for him, would write on the scrolls what he had to say. And so uh, the letter is from Paul and, and a, another Christian by the name of Sosthenes. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Last week, we studied the call of Saul, who we now know as the Apostle Paul. From the very beginning of the letter here, Paul makes it clear that it was 
God's will to call him. And that Sosthenes, the fellow Christian, agrees with everything that Paul is about uh, to write. Now, last week when we, when we studied it, uh, we looked at Paul's testimony throughout the book of Acts. And we saw that Paul believed that he was actually called from his mother's womb. And we talked about that quite a bit last week. God has called all of us for a purpose. All of us. And we must understand that. And, but here's something that I, I don't think there's enough emphasis on in the right way. Um, when God calls, we individuals, I'm talking about us, we together, but as individuals, he's called us as a church together for a lot of things, but he's called each one of us in the church in a, for a specific purpose, and we must respond to his call. It's not a biblical idea that the call of God forces one to respond. That's not the idea. And I believe it's important to understand this because of John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12 reads, Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus. Now, to receive something, you have to willingly receive it. To those who believed in his name, to believe in his name means you believe everything about Jesus, that he came to die for your sins and all that. He gave the right, that word means the privilege, the responsibility, the ability the, uh, to become children of God. But you see, everything from that verse screams at us, you must respond. To receive is an act of God's will empowered by the Holy Spirit, but not forced in us against our will. That's why Jesus cried out with tears. You've heard me use this verse often. I, it's one of my favorite memory verses. It's in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is looking out at, uh, at the Jewish population, basically, and probably has tears rolling down his cheeks as he just says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who uh, were sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing Prophet after prophet had come and warned the people and taught the people, and, and over and over again, they kept going their own way. God's call is real, but we must respond by an act of our will. It would have been disingenuous of Jesus to be so upset at their refusal if they didn't have the ability to respond. When you or I present the gospel to anyone, they then have the ability to respond or not. And it's a terrible tragedy when someone who has heard the gospel doesn't respond. Paul is purposely setting up the Corinthians in this letter by instructing them how they must respond to God's call. So now look at verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3. So it's Paul and Sosthenes writing. Now the next thing they say who they're writing to. They're writing to, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth. So the church is the people. To those sanctified, that's a very important word, in Christ Jesus and called, there's that word again, to be holy called to be holy. That's the Greek word hagios. It means to be set apart for God's purposes. Together 
together with. So it's not just that he's writing the letter to them, but they're called to be holy and sanctified together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And then he says, grace and peace, two very important words that we're going to look at in detail in a moment. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord, whose name is Jesus and who is the Messiah. He's the Christ. So Paul had already stated that he was called to be an apostle. Becoming an apostle was not Paul's idea, but God's idea. This is important because some in Corinth were questioning Paul's authority. Paul wanted it to be clear that his position was from God and in the will of God. This explains Paul's extreme confidence in his ministry. He was positive. He was called of God from all of eternity. Therefore, he spoke strongly for God. When we see ourselves as part of a grand plan that includes all the ages, it should encourage us to use this short time we have on earth for the glory of God and not just for our own pleasure. So Paul is making his his authority clear to the Corinthians. And notice, I kind of emphasize it, if you might have heard it in my voice, notice it's the church of God. The church is God's church, not Paul's church or Pastor Carl's church or Pastor Jim's church. As a matter of fact, the church in the Bible is called the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Oh, and by the way, Paul talks about marriage a lot, and he uses all these illustrations to try to underline what a good marriage is. And uh, in the Ephesian letter that we'll eventually get to, uh, when he talks about marriage, he has uh, just a very little bit to say wives, says a couple of things to them because they didn't need all the extra stuff. And then he has a whole bunch to say to husbands. And he he says uh, to husbands, he says, husbands, so men that are husbands or are going to be husbands, uh, we are to, the Bible says, you're to love your, we, I'm a husband, we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church, the bride. We're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Now, somebody sent me a sermon that I listened to this week, uh, and uh, in the sermon, the pastor preaching was quoting this verse in Ephesians, and he says, at one time I was quoting the verse, And I said, husbands, you're to love your wives like Christ loved the church. And my wife interrupted because I was clearly going to go on from there and said, and? And then he stopped. And then he quoted the next part. So now here it is. Uh, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Okay, all you ladies. And? Oh, come on. And? Jesus gave up his life for the church. You're to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And he gave his life for the church. Men, if you want to have a great marriage, you need to give your life away for your wife. You need to forget about yourself and, uh, and care more about your bride than your very self. And then they'll have no problem. She won't even need the line that says, wife, submit to her husband. 
So right from the beginning of this letter, every word is setting the people up to realize they were thinking much too highly of themselves. That was the big problem in Corinth. Understanding our need for one another will keep us from pride and individualism. We're not Christians just by ourselves, but members together with all the saints of God. And one way to really grasp this is to go on a missions trip to a culture that is completely different uh, than what we experience here and the brotherhood or sisterhood, if you like, of the body of Christ, the church, becomes real. So here are three things we must understand about who we are in Christ or who we are as a part of the church. Three things. First, we are being sanctified. You know, do you remember I mentioned that word at the beginning? That's in verse 2. We are being sanctified. And uh, Paul is saying this is true for all Christians, including himself, as an apostle. We are all being sanctified. Now, what does the word sanctified mean? It means to be set apart for God's purposes. We exist no longer to serve our own purposes, but God's purposes. There's three words that are theological words that you must understand to be a, a, an obedient Christian. First, when we get saved, the theological word is that we have now been justified. We're justified when we're saved, when we become a Christian. And uh, justified means we're becoming uh, just like Jesus. As a matter of fact, when God sees us after we're saved, he really sees the righteousness of Jesus on us. That's what he sees. So when you're justified, then it's just as if you had never sinned. But then after you're justified, you're increasingly, you're not perfect, you're increasingly becoming sanctified. You're increasingly being changed by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, and in the body of Christ because we're set apart for God's purpose. And we must participate in that. And so this means that there should be an ethical impact on our lives so that uh, we are different than the world around us. Paul taught that the Christian life includes observable behavior change. He certainly was a great example of this. That certainly was not the case in the Corinthian church, though, unfortunately. And what is disturbing about that is the fact that they are definitely saved. And I want to emphasize that they're definitely saved and secure in their salvation, but yet they're doing the most terrible things. Uh, the introduction, verse 1 to 3, makes it clear Paul is writing this letter to those who are saved Christians. There is nothing in the letter that even remotely suggests their salvation is at risk. But wait till we get to chapter 3. And it makes it clear that their rewards are at risk because of their inappropriate behavior, but their salvation is never at risk. When we go to heaven, by the way, we're not all equal. We have different rewards because of the way that we participated in our own sanctification. And, uh, and then, secondly, second thing we need to know is that we have been called to be holy, holy. Now, here you'll understand why I called the sermon what I did. Some Bibles translate the phrase, we're called to be holy, called to be saints, saints. Now, that's, uh, and that is correct. All Christians are saints. Not, 
not holier-than-thou people, but people set apart for the purposes of God. That's what the word means. The root idea behind the word hagios is separation to be set apart. Every single one of us is a saint or a set-apart person for a very specific purpose set apart by God, but we must participate in that. In other words, we're to be different because we belong to Jesus, and people in the world should see the difference. We don't escape from the world. We live in the world without being polluted by the world. That's the idea. And the third point is what Paul wrote. Here's the words. Together with all those everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord. You remember in the letter he said, I'm sending this to you Corinthians. Uh, for your, and he's sending it to straighten them out, really. But it's also for everyone everywhere who calls upon the name of the Lord. Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth that they are spiritually connected with all Christians everywhere. Jesus is Lord of all. No one has exclusive rights on Jesus. Actually, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, one sentence describes what a Christian is. One sentence. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And the word name is the name here is important. It includes the character of, of a person. So everyone who, call, who calls in the name of the Lord, we are saved because of who Jesus is. And Jesus saves us because we believe he is who he says he is, that he is the Lord, that he came to this earth, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and he's given us a commission. So those who call on the name of the Lord is a designation for Christians. If someone were to say to you, what are you? I'm one who is called in the name of the Lord. Christians in the Bible never called themselves Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch, but it was not a very complimentary term. To call on the name of the Lord is an Old Testament expression that contains the idea of worship and prayer and supplication, meaning asking God for things. Worship and prayer and supplication. Uh, that's why we start off our services with worship together, raising our hands, clapping our hands, singing the songs. You should always be paying huge attention to the words uh, that are well chosen in those songs. And we're to be men and women while we're doing that who, who are supplicating God. I, God, please help me today. This sermon is terrible. You correct it for me as I go through it. <laughs> A Christian is often called a disciple or a learner or a student of Jesus Christ. But biblically, a Christian is one who calls on the name of the Lord, one who doesn't just follow Jesus or his ways or his teachings, but one who actually worships Jesus as Lord. Now, we must be careful. We don't give the impression that Christianity is simply a religion among religions in the world. It is not. Christianity is the worship of the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, who himself is God, who died for our sins and rose from the dead and will soon return to this world in judgment. And then there are two final words that we need to look at that are found in all of Paul's letters, every one of his letters, grace and peace. Verse 3, grace. Do you see it there? Grace. This word reminds us of God's free gift and especially of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
grace, undeserved favor. Most of you have memorized Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, or can say at least part of it. For it is by grace you have been saved. You didn't deserve it, but it's by grace you've been saved. How does that happen? Through faith, exercising faith. And even that's not from yourselves, that's from God. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, nothing that we do, so that no one can boast. Because if I can become a Christian because I go to church every time the doors open, I can say, look at me. I go to, I've been going to church for years. That's, isn't that, I'm a tremendous Christian. No, I have nothing to do with it. Or you, you can't say, well, you know, I give a lot of money away or I build churches or I, uh, I really help people, I feed the poor. That, all of those things might be okay for you to do, but you can't boast about them as far as salvation is concerned. No, no, salvation is free and it's all of God. You just must respond. Uh, so grace is given, even though we don't deserve it, and nothing we do can qualify us or make us deserving of God's free grace. We never become deserving of it. The grace of God leads us to have peace with God and increasingly experience the peace of God. Oh, this is so important. Philippians chapter 4. I've been spending a lot of time memorizing out of Philippians lately, and this part of it is a joy to just think about. Philippians 4.4. 4. It reads this way in the New Living Translation. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Now, this is written like a command. You know, it's sort of... It, it, I like to get my back up a little bit about these things sometimes. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Well, wait a minute. I mean, you have no idea. My life, what's happened, and, and this, uh, you know, I mean, my business has failed, or my wife has left me, or my husband, or my uh, children don't, they're just such impossible. Uh, and uh, my boss at work, uh, or my employees, I mean, what do you mean, always be full of joy in the Lord? <laughs> You certainly don't mean that. But he says, I say it again, rejoice. And again, it's like a command. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. And then it goes on to say, remember, the Lord is coming soon. Well, I wish he'd come today. Well, that's fine, but he is coming soon. So listen, it's another command. Don't worry about anything. You're kidding. No, 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 don't worry about anything. Well, but no, no, no buts. Don't worry about anything. Well, what do I do then? Well, instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then if you do all that, if you actually do it, then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds or surpasses anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. I mean, uh, just this morning, I was reading for the second time Chuck Swindoll's latest book. And uh, uh, the, the, this is the last thing I read before I closed it up, and I thought, well, I need to read that. This is Chuck Swindoll, not me. I mean, if you don't know who Chuck Swindle is, he's almost 90 years old. He's heading there pretty quickly, and he's got one of the largest churches in the country. And when he, I listen to him every Sunday afternoon to his morning service, and boy, can he teach, and his books are the best. 
So here's what he wrote in his latest book. Uh, Life is 10% what happens to you and uh, 90% of how you respond to it. That's the name of the book. He says this, joy is a choice. It's a matter of attitude that springs from a deep well of confidence in God, trusting that God's at work, that he's in full control, that he's with you no matter what has happened, is happening and will happen. Either we fix our minds on that and determine to smile or we wail and whine our way through life complaining that we never got a fair shake. We're the ones who consciously determine which way we shall go. To quote the poet, one ship drives east and the other drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. That's a really good piece of writing. And when we are saved, the Bible teaches us that God's wrath, his judgment, his righteous anger has been removed from us. And we're no longer at war with God. We're not enemies anymore. And this leads to an experience of the peace that we just noted in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. The word for peace mirrors the Hebrew word shalom. Most of us know the word shalom. It's a picture of God being our friend, and because of that, we can say, all is well with my soul. The feeling of peace can be explained by the word rest or satisfaction. One author says that the peace of God causes happiness in the heart. Jesus puts it this way. These are his words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our souls, that's us. That's the real us. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the yoke of an oxen was custom-made, designed exactly for each animal so that it didn't chafe their neck and prevent them from pulling a heavy plow. The custom-made yoke causes the heavy object to feel lighter. Grace and peace are to be the norm for all Christians. Grace always comes before peace. Grace is the source of peace. Without grace, it's impossible to have the peace that passes understanding, but grace understood always results in peace. It's custom made. Look at verse 3 again. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and we talked about God being Father a lot last week, and the Lord, the one that's in charge totally, Jesus, who is the Christ. And notice the source of both grace and peace from God our Father, whose children we are, and equally from the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and redeemed us and adopted us, another thing we talked about last week, into the family of God. Also, we can relax and enjoy the certainty of eternity and the confidence needed to live our lives for our Father and our Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to be witnesses to the world of God's love and Jesus' sacrifice. So Paul is saying to these Corinthians, you belong to Jesus. You're part of the family of God. Now act like it. 
I mean, that's the, the, that's the way the letter goes. Act like it. As Christians, one of the strongest reasons for us to live holy lives, lives set apart for God's purposes, is because God is our Father and we do not want to disappoint Him. Instead, we want Him to be proud of us because of our obedience to His will, which is not burdensome. Here's a memory verse for you. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're a joy. The church in Corinth was a very bad example of what it means to follow Jesus. Since I gave my life to Jesus, there have been far too many pastors and leaders who have become stumbling blocks to those who are truly trying to live for Jesus. One of the goals of my life is to finish well without causing shame to the name of Jesus. That is why the Bible emphasizes our need for others and our need to meet together and to pray for one another as we learn more and more about each other as we help one another. Just attending church might help a little bit, but not much. We must become part of the body of Christ. God has given every one of us a gift. We're all needed. We're all necessary. We're going to learn about all those gifts in the Corinthian letter. But we can't exercise the gifts if we're not more than just showing up to hear the sermon. We must be doing far more than that, and we must be doing all we can to become part of the body of Christ so that as we go out and scatter into the world, we'll be different and be able to bring people in. You see, church is for Christians, not for non-Christians. If you're a non-Christian, you're welcome here. But church is for Christians so that we can go out and do the work of the ministry. And if we all did that, and this church has been a great example of that, uh, then when people come, and I get this lately, especially the last couple of years, oh, we've come to your church. It's the friendliest place we've ever been. The people are so uh, so friendly and and reach out to us, and that's what we need to be known for. So... What I'm going to do is I'm just going to end with a, a verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, in a Bible version called the PCV version. It's one of the best Bible versions there is. That's Pastor Carl version. And, uh, so, and so listen closely as I read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, the PCV version. I am writing this letter to those of you living in Corinth who have called on the name of the Lord. You are letting everyone in Corinth know God has given you greater purpose in life than was your previous experience. And I'm writing this letter so that everyone who is a follower of Jesus on this earth will be inspired by your example of calling on the Lord and living for him every day. That's what we'll be learning as we study 1 Corinthians. So let's pray. Uh, Father, I just pray for all of us here today that you will help us to, to be the saints that you have made us, to be those set apart for your purpose so that we can not only encourage one another, pray for one another, help one another, and be helped by each other. Now, Father, none of us are to be loners. We're all to be, or individualists, but we're all to be uh, people that come together as the church, as the bride of Christ, to reflect your love, your grace, and your peace. So help us to do that. And Father, I especially pray 
for anyone watching online or even who might be here who have not yet received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Father, I just pray, uh, yesterday I was part of a large memorial service where uh, all I could think of all the way through it is that I hope that people would be saying some of these things about me uh, when I'm finally gone. Uh, Father, help us to live our short lives in such a way that many people will shed tears uh, of tears of joy because we're in heaven, but tears because they miss us. Uh, Help us to be the kind of people uh, who are part of the body of Christ. And if there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus and is missing out on that, I pray that they would pray a prayer like this. Uh, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need help. And I know I need the body of Christ that you're talking about. And so, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Thank you for forgiving them, for dying for me, for rising from the dead. Change my life. If we pray that in any way, then he will do so. In Jesus' name.